welcome to this special episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm Gary Ferencik, a professor of medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. This special recording is a tribute to our friend John Hickner, who died peacefully at home on August 22nd. Um, we are very saddened. This funeral was just earlier this week, and uh, things are still very sore and tender for us. And yet there were many lessons that we all have learned from John um, through our friendship and collaborations that we thought we would share with our listeners. Kate, would you start us off? I have to go first. Um, all right. So I met John as a resident, um, but didn't work with him until fellowship. So um, my sort of stories and tributes um, start with a, a couple of really specific stories that I promise will go somewhere in the end. Um, so one day I was sitting in John's office at the University of Chicago trying to explain the idea that I had for my fellowship project. And I can't even remember exactly what I was pitching, only that it was not a great project and it was definitely not a great presentation of this not great project. And all of that could have been overcomable, I think. But when I was done sort of like rambling through it, John looked at me and said, well, yes, but when you're done with this study, doctors and patients won't be able to do anything with the results. And that stopped me in my tracks. I stopped working on the project and I started working on, on something else. John's statement, which I always reframe to, well, you can do this, but nobody's really going to care, has become the benchmark for a lot of things that I've done since. If no one will care, it's actually okay to quit now and to find something more impactful, more important to do. A second story that I tell, like to tell that I think really highlights John and how he was with people. Um, I have arthritis in my hip and a few other joints. And a few years ago, I can't actually remember where we were. I think Henry was there also. Um, we went to dinner with the host group the night before this this meeting, and dinner stretched on and on. I think we were there for for three hours. Um, and when we got up to leave, my body just like declined to do so. It did not get up and leave. Um, and I remember kind of like falling over, like leaning on a wall, and definitely not really being able to like walk. Um, and John just came over and he grabbed my arm and he said, "Hang on, I'm I'm walking you out. Like I will take care of this." And I was like new to having RA and not particularly like comfortable sharing that with anyone. And John was, he was so kind and didn't, didn't ask a lot of questions. He was just a matter of fact, and he was just going to like get me out of this situation that I did not want to be in, did not, was not really prepared for. And in the past 10 days, I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, like me have considered John a major influence in their careers. And I think, you know, that's because there are so few people who will tell you when you are so far off the mark and how to get back on track, like do projects that people will care about and who will step in to help when you're struggling, even if like you haven't totally figured out how to deal with that struggle. And, you know, I would say I have would not be where I am now if not for John's influence and sponsorship, you know, both figuratively and literally like not on this podcast with you now, um, if not for, for having known John. 
Thanks, Kate. Maybe Henry, you could go next. So I shared this story with John, and I've shared it with others over the years. And uh, John has no recollection of this encounter at all, and that's okay. Um, there was no reason for him because he didn't do anything that to him was necessarily special or out of the ordinary. Uh, and it has to do with the very first time I met John. I was an intern presenting my very first research study at the Michigan Family Medicine Research Day. And my project was a chart review, and I had done all of the chart audits at night while I was on call. I did it solo. I didn't have any help. And when you look at the checklist of all of the things that you're supposed to do uh, in doing chart audit um, studies, mine would have been blank. None of the checks would have been. It was just terrible. And I was nervous and apprehensive. It was my first review. I was marginally continent. And John was one of the judges. Now, in those days, John had this big, bushy, fiery, reddish-brown beard. And, you know, he had those piercing blue eyes, and he would have that stare that was so intense. I thought I was about to be accosted by Eric the Red. But what he said was just so kind and gentle and encouraging, I actually felt good about myself. And over my career, I tried, and I'm mostly unsuccessfully, to be as gracious and positive in providing feedback uh, to learners. Now, I, the night before his funeral, um, my wife Terry and I were having a late dinner in Escanaba, and behind me was a large group, and I overheard mentioning John's name a couple of times. And then when I heard them mention John and Val, I knew exactly who they were talking about. So when I went to, I turned around to um, to say something, the first thing I saw, the first face was John. It was one of John's brothers. The whole table was people who looked like John, brothers and sisters. Um, and then after I shared the story with them, they said, you know, in addition to that, we're not sure we ever heard John swear. So anyway, it wasn't until much later after that first encounter that uh, we were in a master's program that I really got to know John and, and, and then Mark. And I'll let Mark say more about that. But those days really laid the foundation for our collaborations. And later on, I became interested in practice-based research because of John. He had started UpperNet, the Upper Peninsula Research Network, which was very successful. And if you ever went to those meetings, they were unique because not only did they do research project planning, and present works in progress and completed stuff, they actually invited all of the members of the practice, including the front office staff and the nurses to help troubleshoot. And they also did some quality improvement and sharing of best practices. At the end of the meeting, John would sometimes pull out his guitar and play a song. Uh, John was extraordinarily musical, as is the whole family. But most of the time, he would end with a story and send people off on their way. Very folksy and homey and, and, and collaborative in his approach to things. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks, Henry. Um, yeah, I mean, John was early in my career a mentor, and then he became a colleague and for many, many years uh, a, a dear friend. And I remember actually we've got a lot of first encounter stories here, and I, I remember the first time I met him in a Greek diner somewhere in the Detroit suburbs. And I was a very junior faculty at Wayne State University, and John was this you know, well-known figure in family medicine circles and research. 
And I think the only time he ever gave me a really mean look, what, what in the South we call a stink eye, was when <laughs> I called his practice space research network in the Upper Peninsula, Upernet, instead of Uppernet, because down here we call people who live up there Upers sometimes. So um, he was not. But they call they, us they, trolls. They don't cause... like it. They call <laughs> us trolls because we live below the bridge. Anyway, so John and Henry and I, as, as Henry said, we really bonded. Uh, during our master's in the mid-90s at the University of Michigan. We were the only three family docs in a cohort of 30 physicians getting a master's in research design and general nerdiness. And, you know, we became good friends. They were four-day weekends once a month that we would get together, and they lived about, a you know, 100 feet from our house in a dormitory. So we would go to dinners together and um, you know, just had a, a great time. By far the best part and what I learned most from uh, that program was being with you guys. And um, I was really privileged over so many CME courses in so many different states <clears throat> to just teach with John and watch him teach. And uh, I think so many primary care clinicians have benefited from how calm and thoughtful and clear <clears throat> and gentle. And, you know, he was never ruffled, just a total pro and uh, always some great dinners and, and great fun at those courses. You know, even if John was the smartest guy in the room, which was usually the case, he never cared that anyone knew that, which is not often the case for people who think they're the smartest guy in the room or who are the smartest guy in the room. So <clears throat> a couple other things, John and uh, Val visited us in Athens to volunteer at our 20th annual Lucas's Fund charity golf tournament. And they had never come and they don't golf, but they decided they were going to come up from Florida and volunteer. It just came out of the blue it was so meaningful and special that they would make that effort and spend the weekend. And we had a grand time and we really, really appreciated that. And that was before John became ill. And um, it was so good to <clears throat> have those memories of that final weekend uh, together. Uh, aside from our work, we also had a couple of things in common. John was the editor in chief of the Journal of Family Practice, I think the sixth editor, and I was the fourth one. And I was so pleased when he took up that uh, role and provided really tremendous leadership for the journal. And the last thing I'll say is that um, we both enjoyed sailing. Last summer, along with six other guys, we spent four days sailing in the northern Great Lakes, had a couple of sailboats. We even sailed to Beaver Island. John was the captain of our boat, always steady, always clear direction for the crew, always in charge, confident. Uh, I have many great memories of John on that boat, and I only wish we had a lot more sailing trips to share. Gary. Yeah, I, um, unlike you all, John was never uh, like a um, faculty member for me. We actually connected um, with one caveat coming up in a minute uh, through these courses. Um, so we were doing uh, these evidence-based courses before the, the uh, essential evidence courses back 20 years or so. And uh, then this morphed into what we've been doing recently. The uh, interesting thing is that I applied to the Upper Peninsula branch of the College of Human Medicine back in 1979 in Doctors Park in Escanaba. And John was one of the faculty members up there that admitted me to medical school. So <laughs> we only determined this after the fact, you know, 20 years later. Um, you know, John, uh, for me, uh, embodied, embodied kindness. Uh, you know, when you're sick, uh, when you're, when, you know, when you're perhaps a... Um, you know, a, a student or a resident in, in a vulnerable situation, I can't tell you how much kindness matters. It's just one of those things that's uh, easy to talk about and sometimes hard to pull off. And John pulled that off with expertise. The, the kindest man I've ever known, 
um, and probably ever will know. Uh, and in addition to his kindness, he was a rock star. I can remember going to Cleveland Clinic and doing some of these essential evidence courses and people were lining up to talk to him and to shake his hand and to catch up. Um, and it just reminded me again, it wasn't just amongst the people that were necessarily the closest to him. It's you know people he knew years ago uh, that were, um, you know, held him in high regard. I found him to be very thoughtful. And he was a very uh, proud car- card-carrying therapeutic nihilist. <laughs> so he, 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 he used that phrase a lot. I'm a therapeutic nihilist. So John, your, your life will lived. Uh, your memory is going to live on in probably all of our lives. And uh, I just personally wanted to thank him for his influence on all of us and me specifically. Henry, I, I think we're going to turn it over to you to close us out. Thank you. Um, we have Lots of stories and memories, and I think um, I think in the movie Coco they illustrated it very uh, nicely. In that, through the telling of stories, we keep not only do we keep memories alive, but we often keep the person as a living part of ourselves. And so, um, keep telling John's stories, share them with us. Um, um, so I'd like to leave with this last set of remarks. Um, in his final days, the family had asked us to send recorded messages to John. He had lucid moments, mostly in the evenings, and he really appreciated hearing messages. Uh, my first recording was difficult. and I barely got through it. I had shared some memories, um, and not just about my first encounter with him and how much it meant to me, but also the wedding of his daughter, Laura, that was the uh, mem- memory that my daughter keeps going back to, which was the first wedding she ever attended. It was filled with music and song and lots of family stories and things. I also reminisced a little bit about the John Henry Dining Society that we founded during our master's program and how after our meals together, as we're walking back to the dormitory, John would always need to stop for a cup of coffee and something chocolate. John had a little bit of a sweet tooth. I tried to make my last recording a little bit lighter. I told him a bit about my daughter's activities because John had bonded with her when she she was about three years old because he would come to my house just before we would go down to Ann Arbor. And um, she loved him and he doted on her and he liked to keep up with her activities as she grew up. I also told a few silly jokes. John liked jokes, like dad jokes in particular. And I ended the recording the way he ended the upper net meetings with a story, and I shared this one with him by Margaret Wise Brown. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady who was whispering, Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon. Good night, light and the red balloon. Good night, bears. Good night, chairs. Good night, kittens and good night, mittens. Good night, clocks and good night, socks. Good night, little house and good night, mouse. Good night, comb and good night, brush. Good night, nobody. Good night, mush. And good night to the old lady whispering, hush. Good night, stars. Good night, air. Good night noises everywhere. Good night, John.